Moving around, most people love a parade. I believe that there were a lot of those same feelings in Jesus' day. However, it's very important to remember that this was not a holiday parade, as much as it could have felt like one then and now. It was anything but. Jesus is more concerned with the truth and mission than with things being neat and tidy. He was clearly not conflict-averse like me. Jesus takes head-on the three main agendas of his day against Rome, the Jewish temple economy, and the zealots, all at the worst possible time when things would be most explosive in the context of the holiest week of the Jewish calendar and when all the Romans had mobilized its formidable resources to crush any potential problem. Couldn't Jesus have waited one more week until Passover was over? I believe nothing would have pleased Caiaphas more. Although Jesus could have waited, he did not. There would have been so much less drama and it would have been so much easier for the temple leadership. Actually, if you remember, God acted in a very similar way at Pentecost. You see, Jesus is totally focused in his mission, his calling, and his purpose. He is secure in his identity in the Father, and he hears and responds to his Father's direction no matter what else is going on. Jesus is not about keeping the peace so that we can all stay focused on a holiday. He is always about his Father's business, no distractions, no distortions, and no delays. The setting is Passover, and Caiaphas wanted nothing more than to have Passover go off without a hitch. He remembered a time when 2,000 Jews were crucified to quell an insurrection. I believe Caiaphas was thinking, can we just get through Passover and focus on the festival? What do I have to do to get through this week without a situation? Can we just put the drama on hold and get through this holy time? I also believe that this is what he was trying to communicate to Pilate. Don't worry, I have this under control. Nothing is going to happen. I will make sure we keep the peace. We're at a great crossroads in Jesus' life. Everything in his life was building towards this moment and this time. Jesus is openly calling his followers to an allegiance that purposely sets itself up against Roman domination. Jesus' public ministry is coming to an end, and he is setting his face toward his crucifixion. Jesus presents himself as the culmination of messianic Jewish prophecy and publicly challenges the temple authorities at the precise moment when Jerusalem was filled with as many as half a million pilgrims to celebrate God's victory in the exodus from Egypt and their freedom from the bonds of tyranny. There's a deeply political aspect to the celebration. It is certainly one of Jesus' most openly provocative statements to date. His procession is mirrored in the east by a massive Roman procession. It is likely led by Pilate from his, his palace at Caesarea by the sea to keep the peace during this volatile, volatile high feast through an outrageous show of military force that sets up a religious and political powder keg that is bound to be hypermanaged by the Roman authorities and by the Jews who benefited from this uneasy collaboration. From a commentary on the history of Josephus, we learn that the Roman occupation was seen as the equivalent of slavery to the Jewish rebels, 
And so Passover was the perfect time theologically to attempt a new deliverance. This was no typical parade or religious procession. What is presented in the gospel and confirmed by ancient history are two very carefully orchestrated processions with radically different agendas. And each are, giving the, uh, are going to call the followers to a fork in the road, a choice for one way or the other. The gospel presses the question, who do you say that I am? The gospel states what God believes, what God believes about you and me, about the kingdom of God, about heaven and hell, about our neighbor, about the poor, about the outcast, about the prisoner, and about who we will follow. On this day and throughout this week, Jesus is asking us to make a choice. About 32 years ago, I was at a crossroads. I'd gone to seminary for two years, was restless in my secular job. That's an understatement. And I wanted more out of life. I had inquired about the priesthood, presented my desire to our diocesan commission on ministry, and yet something did not feel right. When that did not pan out like I had hoped, I'd asked for God to show me what he wanted. I said to him, if you give me an opportunity to share in ministry, I'll take it. I got on with my life in the world of manufacturing as the guy who did not fit in, frustrated that God had gifted me for more than a factory life. I went back to the grind for more than a decade, trying to manage my desire to serve and trying to ignore the pain of my unrealized promises to God. In 1999, while Jane Maria and I were serving on our church's mission and outreach committee, one of our members brought a magazine to our meeting. It was a copy of the Lutheran, and it featured a program called Abundant Life Ministry. This ministry helped people get back to work. It serves some of the inner city Milwaukee's most marginalized people on a path to wholeness and sustainability. This captured our committee's imagination. And as, as, as Racine had led the state in unemployment for the better part of a quarter of a century, we did a little research and decided to ask the director to come to Racine and talk to us about his program. The more he talked, the more we liked it. In the ensuing months, we got some traction with local churches, and we invited Tom, Abundant Life's director, to make a presentation. After the meeting, we asked him if he thought he would like to franchise into Racine, and he said, yes, this seems like a good idea. For the next two years, I set aside part of my life to making it possible for this agency to expand into Racine. We built a visioning committee, Eventually, I became the head of the committee, and we set our goals of opening a franchise in our church building. I wrote bylaws, articles of incorporation, job descriptions, concept papers. We did focus groups and feasibility studies. We started writing grants, painting rooms, and putting in phone lines, lining up office furniture, and generally getting ready for Abundant Life Ministry to set up shop. Tom was ready to recruit as soon as the money seemed a little more secure. Then the Racine Community Foundation said yes. The S.C. Johnson Foundation said yes. The Dominican Mission Fund said yes. And we, suddenly we had six months of funding committed. Felt like it was time to begin hiring staff. Then the biggest surprise of all, Tom's board said they were no longer interested in supporting our startup. They barred him from using their name in Racine and asked him to spend no more company time helping us in this effort. Tom had to back out. It looked like two years of work were going to come down like a house of cards. As a leader, I looked at our team and said, I don't know what to do. Without Tom, this doesn't seem to make sense. 
Tom looked me in the eye and said, no one ever seen knows more about this program than you. Why don't you do it? He said, I'll support you in any way I can, but you know I won't be able to use Abundance Life resources, uh, or will I be able to assist you on company time? I cannot begin to tell you what was running through my head. One of them was what I said to God about 17 years earlier. So here was a chance to step out. I looked down the road of my current life, and it looked strangely more secure than it ever had before. A growing pension, health insurance, three weeks of paid vacation, 22 years of seniority putting me toward the top of my department, and no worries about where my check was going to come from. The phrase, Lord, if you give me an opportunity, I will take it, rang loud, and it felt vulnerable and somewhat frightening. I talked to my wife and was quite surprised by her calm demeanor. <laughs> she was supportive and raised almost no concerns. She said, do you think this is what God wants you to do? Is this what you want to do? I said that I believe so. <laughs> so there it is. The road to running my own business and having others depend on me for their family stability was almost overwhelming. Was this really what I asked for? Was I ready? Was God really with me? Two roads diverged in that yellow wood, and I looked down one as far as I could, and I could not see if it was the way or not. I could not see beyond where it bent in the undergrowth. Lord, were you at the end of that path? Jane Marie and I decided to take this step together. It was a tremendous leap of faith. It required a decisive move. I could not keep my, my feet on both paths any longer. So I turned in my notice to my current employer. Our team put all of our efforts into finishing the offices and setting a launch date. A few weeks later, the Siebert Lutheran Fund also said yes, and we had enough money for our first year of operations. Tom helped me land a job fair with Jewel Osco that ended up being front page news, and in six months we were funded by the United Way. God showed his favor in many ways in that first year of this journey. I learned to say to our participants, partly born in this very experience, God does not allow us to see around the corners. Sometimes you just have to step out in faith that the new path before us is the path he's offering, whether we can see it all or not. As I said earlier, what is presented here in the gospel are two very carefully orchestrated procession, uh, processions with two radically different agendas. And it puts us right at that fork in the road, a choice for one or the other. One procession had soldiers, one had peasants. One had weapons and one had palm branches. To make this choice even more confusing, there were at least four competing agendas, hundreds of thousands of Jewish pilgrims, zealots looking to incite insurrection, and everyday Jerusalem citizens celebrating Passover, a feast that remembers that God brought them out of slavery and oppression, even while they were living under the brutal tyranny of Rome. The challenge of Roman authority was to challenge the might of Roman military power, the cult of the emperor, and all the gods of Rome. These challenges were an act of treason that had powerful political and religious overtones. As such, Pilate was seen by Rome as an emissary of a son of God. Neither procession were the kinds of public entertainments we associate with a parade. They were radically opposed displays of power and authority that were hallmarks of rule from two different kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world. This is at the heart of Jesus' message when he later challenges Pilate's power and authority and says, you have no power over me if it had not been given you from above, and 
My kingdom is not of this world. For 80 years, Rome ruled with an iron fist. Not long before, in 4 BC, just after the death of Herod the Great, and shortly before Jesus' birth, there was a major Jewish uprising. After the revolt was quashed, 2,000 Jews were publicly crucified. This horrific display of terror was vivid in the memories of the religious authorities, and it certainly informed each of the political agendas of the day. No one, least of all Caiaphas, wanted this to replay itself during this holy festival. He was in a very tough spot. The parade staged by Jesus was no less audacious than Rome's. Jesus had the attention of Jewish authorities already. Earlier in John's Gospel, we hear, now he, while he was in Jerusalem at Passover, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need human testimony about them, for he knew what was in their hearts. He did not entrust himself to them because he knew that a faith built on signs and wonders was a shallow faith indeed. It appears Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He was making a bold and unmistakable challenge to all of the political and religious agendas. Jesus is no 1960s flower child, preaching an impotent, passive love, a belief that everything's all right, accompanied by a few protest songs for voice and guitar. His bold message is that God's love will break the back of the oppressor, the ungodly religious agendas, and even the zealots' desire to conquer Rome through insurrection. Jesus is clear. Rome will be defeated. The temple will be destroyed. And Jesus will sit at God's right hand as the Son of God, not a Son of God, to rule and judge all the nations and all the people. This message of love and freedom was beginning to be embraced by many of the people, but for the most part in distorted ways modified by whatever agenda appealed to them most, or how they were impressed by the stories of miracles, wisdom, freedom, speech, and healings. It is important to know that people have always taken on lies and distortions about God. Even when Jesus speaks plainly, many of us hear what we want to hear. We filter out the possibility for God to inform us of his true intentions through poor theology, distorted spiritual principles, and a lack of discernment. Some, like the apostles and other disciples, hoped for a reign of peace with this loving rabbi and teacher. Some saw him as the rod that would break Rome's grip right here and right now. Some saw him as a blasphemer. Some as a revolutionary. Some as a dangerous miracle worker who would bring down Rome's wrath upon them, just like in 4 BC a few decades earlier. Was he a political liberator, a country rabbi, a revolutionary, a religious rebel, a son of God, or just a man? The truth is that in all these circumstances, Jesus never loses his identity in the Father. He was not swayed by opinion or perceived need. He was not bound by an anxious need to keep peace at all costs. He did not shrink from the hard truths, and he did not fear the will of the masses. He walks in a straight line without wavering into his purpose because he knows who he is. He accepts the Father's mission, knowing full well that it will lead to his death. In the process, he disappoints, he confuses, and even startles some of his closest followers. In a few days, those who know him best will scatter, losing all sense of who they are, like sheep without a shepherd. 
Even so, Jesus enters Jerusalem in a way that is pr- as, as provocative as Rome's display on the other side of town. Jesus asks his disciples to get a donkey, fulfilling Jewish messianic prophecy from the prophet Zechariah, which has a subtitle in my Bible, Judgment on Israel's Enemies. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Are you really aware of how provocative that is? Bishop Pocho, I keep going back to this, but he, he says we sometimes get comfortable with these stories and we forget how politically charged they were. Imagine Pilate with his Jewish advisors about this prophecy and hearing the words within the context of this chapter, I will stir up your sons, O Zion, and wield you like a warrior's sword. I will set your prisoners free. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. That sounds an awful lot like revolution to me. And it did to Pilate and the temple authorities. Everyone in power had a lot to fear, and the Jews had a lot to lose. In all of these agendas and expectations is a profound truth that I want you to hold on throughout the rest of this sermon. Jesus not, did not come to meet our expectations. He came to meet our needs. In all of this, I believe Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. The prophet Isaiah says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. On this day, like no other, he revealed himself the king, the long-awaited Messiah, welcomed as the son of David, who is coming triumphantly in the mighty name of the Lord. The diverse agendas of this day would ultimately conspire against Jesus. Rome's power will appear to win the day. The zealots eventually get Barabbas, and Caiaphas convinces the authorities that it will be expedient for one man to die for the people. I'm sure he had those 2,000 crucifixions in the back of his mind when he said this. Let's not be too hasty in how we judge Caiaphas. He was trying to manage things so that people wouldn't die. He was trying to maintain the worship of the temple. But on this day, he enters Jerusalem, Jesus does, as a culmination of messianic prophecy. The prophet sees Jesus as more than just a suffering servant. As Father Steve often says, there are more facets to this diamond. The issue is not simply that the servant's suffering has meaning, but that the servant's suffering is his calling. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What exactly is that calling? What is God trying to accomplish? Although this week is his march towards death, the passage starts with the triumphant notes of Palm Sunday. Indeed, my servant shall prosper, be exalted, and raised to great heights. Jesus will have the final say in this matter. He had the first word in creation and the last word in defining himself. He will later redefine death and show us the way to the Father through resurrection and ascension. And he will ultimately have the last word when he comes again, when every knee will bow. 
Isaiah goes on to say, the victory the servant is going to achieve will be so surprising that it will shock nations and silence kings. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. So why was this day charged with so much energy? While Jesus was riding into Jerusalem from the west, Pilate, his horses, and chariots, those promised to be cut off from the land by the prophet Zechariah, were entering Jerusalem from the east. It was a grand procession, a display of power that most of the people would have come to surely recognize. Its purpose would not be hidden. Rome's entrance was to remind the occupied city that they were not in charge, that their very lives were spared by the will of the emperor, and that their God, the God of Abraham, was not in control. The people heard this loud and clear, and they resented it. Rome blasphemed the name of the Lord by their very presence in the holiest of cities. Jerusalem and the temple was the very house of God and the center of Judaism for close to a thousand years. Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims poured into the city from around the world, and Rome was letting them know that any thoughts of sedition and you will die under the watchful eye of Roman gods, and your God will not be able to do anything about it. Jesus continues to challenge the authorities throughout the week. On Monday, he repudiates the temple economy, turning over tables and pointing out how the temple had become a place of oppression to the poor. The scripture says from that day on, the chief priests and scribes were looking for ways to kill him, but they couldn't find any opportunities because the crowds were spellbound by his teaching. <clears throat> on Tuesday, Jesus challenges temple authorities. <clears throat> He warns listeners to beware of the scribes, tells the story of the vineyard and the murder of the owner's son, and then tells them of the destruction of the temple. And on Wednesday, Jesus is betrayed by Judas. So what about these agendas? <clears throat> agenda number one, Rome had a clear agenda to exercise its power to establish the cult of the emperor in Jerusalem and the superiority of Roman gods, Roman culture, and Roman might. During this time, Jews only worshipped in the temple at the pleasure of Rome. Tiberius' father was thought to be a son of Apollo. Tiberius put himself in that same lineage. Earlier, Julius Caesar had allowed the Jews to practice their traditional religious practices, a policy which was followed and extended, and this gave Judaism a special status of an officially recognized religion throughout the empire. Agenda number two. This policy of religious legitimacy gave Jews a special but very uneasy privilege. They were able to carry out the religious services and enjoy an empire-wide exemption from sacrificing to the emperor as long as they cooperated with authorities. Caiaphas had a singular focus, to keep peace with those who wanted Rome gone so that the temple worship could go on interrupted and the temple economy could continue to benefit some of Jerusalem's wealthiest families. He would work closely with Rome to protect the temple, its priests, its leading families, and the community. Jesus' growing popularity and his challenges to the temple system were a political liability to Jewish authorities. And then there were, the, there were those zealots. They had a big axe to grind. The zealots were a political movement which sought to incite the people in the Judean province to, re to rebel against the Roman Empire and to expel it from the Holy Land by force. They were sure to be present for Passover and to look for an opportunity to create an insurrection. With over half a million pilgrims in town, a plan to organize them might have a chance to overthrow the Romans. Pilate actually releases Barabbas, one of Jerusalem's most notable warriors. Matthew refers to Barabbas as a notorious prisoner. 
Mark and Luke further refer to Barabbas as one involved in a riot, probably one of the numerous insurrections against the Roman power who had committed murder. Although an insurrection did not happen at this time, it could have, and Rome was positioned to stomp it out should it get started. We also have the agenda of Jesus, who sets up a very public counter-demonstration. Surely this got the attention of Pilate and Caiaphas. Jesus had become a well-known miracle worker and was getting a substantial following. His audiences would surely grow with all the religious pilgrims in town. Caiaphas knows of him and surely knew all of the rich prophetic meaning in Jesus' ride on a donkey. The most important kings of Israel, David and Solomon, also entered Jerusalem in the same way. Caiaphas must have been shocked by this seemingly arrogant posture. Caiaphas must have thought, who does he think he is? Surely the people would know this symbolism, and surely it would make Pilate nervous if he thought Caiaphas had lost control. Jesus was seriously pressing the question. He and his followers would be in the crosshairs of Jewish authorities, and the Roman authorities would surely have been informed of this potential problem by Caiaphas himself. <clears throat> With all of these agendas, making a choice may seem hard to sort out. However, it has a gospel simplicity to it. Jesus is simply saying, will you follow me? It is not a choice between four agendas or a complex rational argument or a choice of philosophies or religion or theological hair splitting. The real question is shockingly straightforward. Will you follow me? Will you live as sheep in my fold? Will you know my voice? Will you let me define who you are? Will you let me give you rest? As Palm Sunday passes and Holy Week is beginning to unfold, the question Jesus poses to us is, which procession are we in? Which procession do we want to be in? Will we follow the, will we follow the crowd or follow the Lord? Will we see him as our treasure or pearl of great price? Or will we judge Jesus' worth by how he meets our expectations? Life presents many forks in the road. Every day we are confronted with choices. The road that leads to the kingdom of God or the road that leads to the kingdom of this world. That is the gospel choice. Do not make it any more complicated than Jesus is making it right now. In the parable of the banquet, we see that many are invited, but few take the call. Robert Frost beautifully and succinctly illuminates the nature of this choices in his poem, The Road Less Traveled. He says, I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. In the end, the will of God was carried out by Jesus in the most chaotic of circumstances, in the midst of one of the holiest of weeks. Is he calling you into this way of ministry? Even his impending death did not dissuade him from his father's mission to confront evil, challenge unjust systems, to teach, and to challenge those closest to him, and to proclaim God's prophetic word to all people. In what way is Jesus leading you down your road? The road to the death of your agenda? The death of your fear and anxiety? The death of your need to figure everything out? The death of your need to control your environment to try to garner a little peace? What is God asking for you to offer up as a sacrifice this week? 
What lies and distortions will you bring to the foot of the cross and lay there so that Jesus may heal them? And like Jesus, you may better fulfill God's unique call to you. You are being called down a particular road to be clothed in a particular ministry that you have been uniquely made for. If we commit to walking down that road, I guarantee it will make all the difference. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.